Are you ready for the fourth and last podcast in this series? We're going to do Resurrections 2 through 6 and the end of time. Let's start with a second resurrection. We will learn of another second resurrection that will occur at the end of the Great Tribulation after the final defeat of Satan and his army. But first we ask, what happened when Satan and his army were overthrown? This would be at the end of the Great Tribulation. Satan was chained and bound for a thousand years, so he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. What will follow Satan's imprisonment at the end of the Great Tribulation will be the Millennial Kingdom, ruled by the Messiah, a time of peace, because the world will be governed from Jerusalem with godly principles. As for Satan's political ruler and false prophet, they will be thrown alive into a lake of fire. Fire in Scripture is a symbol that acts like a two-edged sword. On one side of the sword, fire purifies by abolishing anything that is impure, leaving only what is pure and holy. On the other side, as with the case of Satan's political ruler and false prophet, fire destroys completely. Regarding those who fought in Satan's army, we are told that the rest were killed with a sword, which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. Yeshua is the one sitting on a white horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. That's Revelation chapter 19, verse 21. Can you see the apocalyptic vision of vultures tearing apart the flesh of the enemy? The continuing description of this slaughter is conveyed with graphic imagery. The wine press, a symbol of judgment, was trodden outside the city and blood came out from the wine press up to the horse's bridles for a distance of 200 miles. Now, we are ready to discover the second resurrection, which will occur after the defeat of Satan at the end of the Great Tribulation. In John's vision, he says, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. These are people who remained faithful to God during the seven years of intense trial and tribulation. They are Jews, and they are Gentiles, whom God will deem worthy to be added to the righteous remnant that was previously resurrected in the first resurrection at the beginning of the Great Tribulation. We are now seeing a second resurrection. But before we continue, we must address a perplexing statement in Revelation. In John's vision, he speaks of this second resurrection by declaring, This is the first resurrection. That's Revelation 20, verse 5. But how could it be the first? We saw the first resurrection of a remnant at the beginning of the Great Tribulation. In his article, The First Resurrection, Meredith Klein offers what I believe is an insightful explanation. The Greek that has been translated first is protos. Klein explains that protos can either mean the first in a sequence of events or it can represent the old order of the world identified as the first, which will be followed by what comes after that, which is God's kingdom. Klein suggests 
that what the Apostle John calls the first resurrection in Revelation 20, verse 5, is referring to the end of the old order for those who will be resurrected at the end of the Great Tribulation. They will be entering God's presence in his millennial kingdom. What, then, is our conclusion about the perplexing statement that this is the first resurrection? First, refers not to the first in sequence, but to an incomplete status of God's ultimate goal, which will only be fulfilled as we progress through the next four resurrections. To understand the third resurrection, you must first perceive the purpose of the millennial kingdom. Yeshua will be both the king and the high priest of a kingdom that will include expanded borders of what is Israel today and will be governed with godly principles. However, this kingdom will also have authority throughout the rest of the world, which will be inhabited by the pagan nations and perhaps also by God's people who are not yet righteous in God's eyes. Twice a year, these people outside of the kingdom will be required to come to Jerusalem to celebrate the festivals of Passover and Sukkot. The remaining five of Israel's annual festivals are not mentioned, and I have suggested in my book, The Remnant Part 4, The End of Time Revealed in Israel's Annual Festivals, that the prophecies projected by these five festivals will have already been fulfilled. Thus, only Passover and Sukkot will still be pointing forward to events that will occur after the Millennial Kingdom. Those who will be serving Yeshua in this kingdom will be the remnant from the first and second resurrections, plus their families. Why do I include the families? As only one example in Scripture, Noah is identified as the first remnant, and he and his family were delivered from death by the flood. So, I have concluded that the remnant and their families will be demonstrating the righteousness of God in the millennial kingdom by their words and their actions, in fact, by their very lives. Then we hear an astonishing prophecy spoken by Isaiah describing what will happen during this millennial kingdom. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. That's Isaiah chapter 2, verse 3. This terse statement discloses the purpose of the millennial kingdom. The role of the remnant will be to witness the righteousness of God so others outside the kingdom will want to become righteous also in order to come into the presence of God. In this way, the ones who qualify for the remnant are going to increase dramatically, probably dramatically, during the thousand-year reign of Yeshua, which leads us to the third resurrection. I have personally concluded that a third resurrection will occur shortly after the battle that will end the thousand-year reign of Yeshua. We read in Revelation, when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations. Satan and his army will be defeated. And then comes another judgment when God will continue to discern the righteous and the unrighteous. We have already seen two previous judgments, one at the beginning of the Great Tribulation and one at the end of the Great Tribulation. 
each of these two judgments was followed by a resurrection of those whom God found worthy of serving in the remnant. We must now ask two questions. Who will be added to the remnant at the end of the millennial kingdom? And how will they be added in a third resurrection? We will start with the first question. Who will be added to the righteous remnant at the end of the millennial kingdom? We have already discovered the answer in the purpose of the millennial kingdom. People outside the kingdom will experience the love and peace and grace of God that was witnessed by Yeshua and the righteous remnant who will be serving him. What power the remnant has by working with Yeshua to witness the magnificent glory of God. Now we ask, how will people be added in a third resurrection? I discovered the third resurrection, which will follow a third judgment, after a sudden insight. One never forgets those moments, and I will never stop thanking and praising God for them. I realized that Israel's fall festivals are prophetic of what will happen after the millennial kingdom. That was the extent of the insight, so I had to roll up my sleeves and start working. There is one passage in Scripture that clearly describes Yom Kippur, which is Leviticus chapter 16, verses 1 through 34. As I was reading these verses in Hebrew, I was quite startled to discover something I had never seen before. Consider the New American Standard Bible in the English translation. He, meaning the high priest, shall take two goats and present them. The verb present them is in the heath eel causative, so is causing them to stand, which is presenting them, but it's causative, causing them to stand before the Lord at the doorway of the tent of meeting. Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. Then Aaron shall offer. Again, we've got a heath eel cause to draw near is what it should be. Then Aaron shall cause to draw near, draw near to God, the goat on which the lot for for the Lord fell and make it, the first goat, a sin offering. Now listen carefully to the remainder of the passage. But the goat on which the lot for the scapegoat fell shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement upon it, to send it into the wilderness as the scapegoat. I'm in Leviticus chapter 16, verses 7 through 10. Therefore, the first goat is for a traditional sin offering, which is needed for those who have sins that still need to be forgiven. The ones who need this forgiveness are not yet worthy to participate in the remnant then we have the second goat. I draw your attention to the translation of key words that we just read from the New American Standard Bible. Presented alive before the Lord. I found this same translation in the following popular Bible versions. Douay Rem's American edition, which is Catholic. The King James Bible and the New International Version, both of which are Protestant translations. Two Jewish publications translated set alive before the Lord and placed alive before the Lord. But that is not what I found in the Hebrew. I'm going to take you to the Hebrew now. I will read the Hebrew first, 
Then I will transliterate it for you. Let me read the Hebrew. Ya'amad chai lifnei Adonai. Now let me translate, or transliterate it will be, transliterate. Ya'amad is shall stand, chai, alive, lifnei, before, Adonai, that's the sacred name for God, and I say the Lord. I don't speak the, the sacred name. So, shall stand alive before the Lord. Are you as startled as I was? Compare shall be presented or set or placed alive before the Lord with the original Hebrew we just read. What did you hear? The Hebrew verb is amad, which means to stand, not the result of standing, which is to present, set, or place. For you Hebrew buffs, Ya'amad is in the imperfect or incomplete sense of time, so shall stand before the Lord is a correct translation. Thus, the second goat shall stand alive before the Lord. Standing is symbolic of righteousness. To stand alive before the Lord requires righteousness because a sinful condition causes death. I suggest these two goats represent two groups of people. One needs a sin offering because these people are still in a sinful condition. I suggest that the ones in the second group, symbolized by the second goat, have demonstrated righteous behavior during the millennial kingdom and are now ready to be added to the righteous remnant. They can stand alive before the Lord So they must have been resurrected in a third resurrection to be able to come into God's holy presence. Now we ask, what happens next? The second goat, who represents those whom God has declared to be righteous, will be sent into the wilderness, which represents the world in which we live. What will they be doing in the wilderness? I'm sure you know. They will be witnessing the righteousness and glory of God to all those who are not yet worthy to participate in the remnant. Now, to explore the fourth and fifth resurrections, we must turn to the spiritual significance of numbers. There are five days between Yom Kippur and the last fall festival of Sukkot. Sukkot represents the end of time. Since numbers in scripture often convey spiritual meaning, I reviewed Bullinger to find that the number five represents God's grace. If there is God's grace on these five intervening days, then something must be happening to merit God's grace. What will be happening? I found the answer in the numbers of the days. Since Yom Kippur occurs every year on the 10th day of the month of Tishrei, then the five days until Sukkot will be Tishrei 11, 12, 13, 14, ending on the 15th day, which represents an extreme amount of God's grace, because five times three equals 15. It is now time to return to Bullinger, who explains the spiritual meaning of these numbers. Listen carefully, and you will Here, a pattern of perfection followed by disorder, which is followed by perfection, 
and then again followed by disorder. So it goes back and forth, perfection, disorder, perfection, disorder. The number 10 for Tishrei 10, that is the day of Yom Kippur. 10 represents the perfection of divine order. 11 on Tishrei 11 is disorder, disorganization, imperfection, and disintegration, according to Bullinger. 12 for Tishrei 12 is the perfection of divine government. 13 for Tishrei 13 is rebellion, apostasy, defection, corruption, disintegration, and revolution. 14 for Tishrei 14, the number 7 doubled. 7 equals perfection and completeness. When doubled, the perfection is emphasized. 15, Tishrei 15, is the first day of Sukkot. Let's look now at the fourth resurrection. You will remember that the remnant was enlarged and strengthened during Yom Kippur and was sent into the wilderness of the world. I suggest that Tishrei 11, which represents disorder, disorganization, imperfection, and disintegration, is a time when those whom God has selected to participate in the remnant will witness to the ones who are still in the clutches of the world, which is dominated by Satan. The rescue of these people can only happen if they repent of their worldly ways. The remnant will be guiding them in that direction. What has happened in the past when the remnant portrays God to the world? The pattern in the numbers between Yom Kippur and Sukkot tells us that perfection follows disorder. The number 12 is a perfect number that represents divine government. And 12 follows the disorder and chaos of 11. Do you hear the echo from another portion of Scripture? The Millennial Kingdom was a time of divine government, and disorder both preceded and followed this thousand-year reign of the Messiah. Do you remember how the millennial reign of Christ made more people worthy of the remnant, who were then resurrected in the third resurrection? I suggest this is the same pattern that we are now seeing in the five days between Yom Kippur and Sukkot. I have concluded that the eleventh day of Tishrei represents a time of chaos and disorder that will end with the defeat, not the final defeat, of God's enemy. The purpose of this disorder will be to bring more people into God's presence during the twelfth day of Tishrei as they learn to turn to God in humble obedience. That will be the time of the fourth judgment and the fourth resurrection. The fifth resurrection finalizes eternal life promised to all of God's people. Well, I would say God's children, because more are going to come in in the sixth resurrection. So the fifth resurrection finalizes eternal life promised to all of God's children. The same pattern continues with Tishrei 13 and 14. 13 represents a time of chaos and disorder that will end with the defeat, again, not the final defeat of God's enemy. The purpose will be the same, to bring more people into God's presence during the 14th day of Tishrei. Now I will share a logical conclusion that I really find quite exciting. 14 is the perfect number 7 that has been doubled for emphasis. Are you ready for what 7 signifies? 7 represents what is finally complete and perfect. Therefore, 
not only will this be a time for the fifth judgment and the fifth resurrection, but I have also concluded that all of God's people, both those from Israel, the Jews, and Gentile believers in Christ, will finally be in God's presence with eternal life at the time of this fifth resurrection that will occur right before the beginning of Sukkot. Now, we must search to discover how God will honor his promise to bless the remaining unbelieving Gentiles, which will be the sixth and last resurrection. You will remember that God told Abraham, in your seed, all the nations of the earth, meaning the remaining unbelieving Gentiles who are not Jews, shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. That's Genesis 22, 18. So those of us who are Gentile believers in Christ are not the complete, the, the completeness of bringing in Gentiles. We're a forerunner. We're pointing forward to the final fulfillment that's going to happen during Sukkot. So let's look at Sukkot in the end of time. Sukkot is the last of Israel's annual festivals and is recognized by both Jewish and Christian scholars as representing the conclusion of God's work. However, because of my intense research that has persisted for more than three decades, I believe I have perceived numerous prophetic details that I explain and substantiate in my book, The Remnant Part Four: End Times Revealed in Israel's Annual Festivals. I will only give you a glimpse of that information now. You will remember that the Gospel of John explains that Yeshua refused to come to Jerusalem, Jerusalem to celebrate the seven days of Sukkot until the midst of the feast. I have found this event to be prophetic. Before I explain why I drew this conclusion, listen to the verse in the Gospel of John that is composed in a chiastic construction. Yeshua is speaking to his disciples. Instead of reading these lines in order, I will read the parallel lines together. The A lines. Yeshua says, My time is not yet here. I do not go up to this feast because my time has not yet fully come. The B lines. But your time is always opportune, speaking to the disciples. Go up to the feast yourselves. The C lines. The world cannot hate you because you witness righteousness, but it hates me because I condemn the evil deeds of the world. Therefore, the disciples were left to witness righteousness in Jerusalem to a corrupt world without Yeshua. I suggest this is what will happen during the future fulfillment of Sukkot. All those who have been added during repeated resurrections to what was originally a small righteous remnant, and now includes all of God's children, will be called to work together, both Jew and Gentile, to fight against God's enemies. They are now prepared to work for God against Satan during the first half of Sukkot until Yeshua joins them in the midst of the feast. We're ready now for the sixth resurrection of the nations, the remaining Gentiles. Now, during Sukkot, will be the time for God to fulfill his promise to the nations. I must caution you that bringing Gentile believers in Christ into God's household today is only a partial fulfillment of God's promise to the nations that will be completely fulfilled prophetically during Sukkot. The book of Jonah 
is a wonderful prophetic story of how God will bless the nations in the end of time. The clue to this prophecy is this. When Jonah was angry with God, who was going to forgive the wicked Assyrians, Jonah sought the comfort of shade by sitting under a sukkah. When we hear sukkah, we think of Sukkot, which is our clue that this story is prophetic. God had told Jonah to witness to the evil ancient Assyrians in their capital of Nineveh, which is a prophetic picture of the work of the remnant during the first half of Sukkot. Yet, 40 days in Nineveh will be overthrown, cried Jonah to the Assyrians. Thus, the remnant will be witnessing to all those remaining Gentiles who have been deceived by Satan and do not yet belong to God. Then we learn in the book of Jonah that the king of Assyria issued a decree that all in his kingdom should repent. How do you think God responded? When God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them. That's Jonah chapter 3, verse 10. True repentance from the heart earns God's forgiveness. Although God has given mankind free will, so repentance must be a loving decision. Apparently, not all will respond to this call to repent, but many will because of the work of Yeshua and the remnant. So, with God's forgiveness of repenting Gentiles during Sukkot, will come the last judgment and the sixth resurrection, when I am convinced that the remaining unbelieving Gentiles will see Yeshua and submit to him in humble obedience. Now we turn to the end of time. The very end of God's work, which he will have accomplished through six resurrections to bring a righteous and loving people into his presence, is captured in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. This is a long quote, but I want to read it. It's really, really important. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 22 to 28. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ, remember, walking in righteousness as Jesus Christ walked, in Christ all shall eventually be made alive, but each in his own order, that is, his own group. Christ the firstfruits, a gift to God by righteous obedience. After that, those who are Christ's at his coming. We have seen not one, but six resurrections of Christ's coming for judgment and resurrection. Then comes the end when he, Christ, delivers up the kingdom to the God and Father, when he, Christ, has abolished all rule and all authority and power. For he, again meaning Christ, must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. For he, Christ, has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he, Christ, is accepted, who put all things in subjection to him, who is God the Father. All things are subjected to him, God the Father, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, that is, to Christ, who ruled for God the Father to bring these things about, so that in the very end, God will be all 
in all. Let us praise our wonderful God and do our best today to grow closer to our Lord Yeshua by walking as he walked. Perhaps God will find us worthy to be resurrected in the first resurrection.